Well, good morning. We are continuing our series titled Stand, which we started last week. And before we really dive into that, I've got a, a little confession to make. Um, every now and then, as a pastor who preaches on a regular basis, I walk off the stage at the end of the message and I wonder if it really connected. I wonder if it if it accomplished what I had hoped it would accomplish, or even more so, if it accomplished what uh, God wanted it to accomplish in preparing and delivering the message. And if I'm honest, last week was one of those. I can't point to any specific reason why that would be the case, uh, but I just I just wondered a couple of times uh, on Sunday afternoon and on Monday as I started preparing for this week, I wasn't sure if that really connected or or accomplished what I had hoped that it would accomplish. And so I was very, very blessed uh, around the middle of the week to hear from somebody who shared uh, that some some opportunity had come for them to either blend in and sort of deflect, uh, or on the other hand, maybe they could take a stand and stand out, which is what we talked about last week. And and the context uh, was that somebody from their past, uh, from their BC days, and, and the life that they lived uh, prior to giving their heart to Christ resurfaced and was asking some questions, and and um, and they had an opportunity to just kind of deflect, no, you know, uh, brush things off, or to really take a stand and uh, share about the difference that Christ had made in their lives, and and they did the op- they did the second, they they took a stand and they shared uh, openly about who they are now and how they are not the person that they were before and who Christ is to them. And um, and maybe, just maybe, their courage in sharing that and their courage in taking a stand will encourage one of you. That was our, our bottom line last week, was that uh, courage is contagious and maybe their courage can be contagious for you as you have opportunities this week to either blend in or to take a stand. And that's really our focus uh, in this series on the book of Daniel is to have the courage to do the right thing, even if it's hard. Because as we talked about last week, if you compromise, if you just seek to blend in and compromise on the wrong things at the wrong times for the wrong reasons, it can cost you and those you love more than you can imagine. But if you take a stand for the right things at the right time and the wrong, right reasons, then that can change the course of a life, can change the course of a family, a community, or even the world. We've been emphasizing the word right, that we want to be a people who speak the truth in love and who take a stand for the right things at the right time, in the right way, and for the right reasons. Rather than assaulting people with the truth or with how right we are, we seek to have the wisdom, not only the courage to stand, but the wisdom to stand in the right way, the wisdom to stand for the right things, the wisdom to stand in a way that will point people to God. And so this absolutely has the potential to be a life-changing series for you and for those around you. Last week, as I mentioned, we talked about standing out, standing out from the crowd and standing out for God. And the idea that courage is contagious, we see this in the life of Daniel, when he takes a stand and stands out from the crowd and refuses uh, to eat the food that had been sacrificed to uh, idols and the wine that had been dedicated to pagan gods and stands out and chooses not to defile himself in that way, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, found the courage to stand 
as well. We had a good laugh in our staff meeting when we were sort of uh, debriefing the service and the message, and I always like to get a little feedback. Um, we talked about how I had said at one point uh, that it's better to be remembered for standing out than forgotten for blending in, and there was an asterisk on the screen, but I didn't really point out the asterisk. I had intended to say something to the effect, as long as you're standing out in the right way at the right time for the right reasons, because let's all admit it, uh, we, history is filled with people like Adolf Hitler who took a stand, uh, but for the wrong things at the wrong time, the wrong there's nothing right about the stand that they took. So we want to be a people who stand out, who take a stand for the right things at the right time in the right way. And so today we're talking about standing up. And last week we talked about standing out from the crowd. Today we're talking about standing up for what is right and what matters most. And sometimes this is in the context of a crowd, but it find, I find that more often when we need to stand up for something or stand up, um, a, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation is where that, that takes place, that we need to stand up uh, when we see somebody moving in the wrong direction or doing the wrong thing. And so it's, it's challenging to teach a message like this because it's very easy for people to hear it the wrong way. Uh, some people are overly confrontational, and preaching a message like this is like handing a teenager keys to a brand new Corvette. It's maybe not the wisest thing to do. So keep in mind our emphasis is not just on standing up, but standing up at the, for the right things in the right way at the right time and for the right reasons. Because we can all think of times when it's necessary to stand up to someone or something. Uh, maybe you've got a child that's making bad decisions and whether they're six years old or 16 years old or they're into adulthood and you see this happening, it may be a time to take a stand, or perhaps there's unethical things happening at your workplace uh, that you're aware of and, and you're not okay with, and it's time to take a stand. Uh, we can all think of that one manipulative relative in our family that that uh, seems to, to maneuver things and make things happen that, that people didn't really want to have happen. And, and if you can't think of anybody, then it, it's possible that you're that person in your family. Um, but we, we have times in our lives when we need to take a stand. Maybe you have a friend that is drifting into sin or running headlong into sin. Last week, uh, or I'm sorry, a couple months ago, I talked about gossip and how absolutely destructive gossip is to a church or to a family in the workplace. And, and really, anywhere that there are relationships taking place, gossip absolutely erodes trust. It erodes um, unity. It erodes all the good things that come in a, a relational situation or a relational community. And so having the courage to take a stand against somebody who is gossiping, somebody who is, is spreading uh, rumors or uh, saying things that they really shouldn't be saying about other people. Or maybe it's as simple as you have a friend who has really bad breath and, and they just aren't even aware. And it's time for somebody to take a stand and maybe it's going to be you. Whatever the case may be, there are times when we need to take a stand. And so I want to ask uh, for a show of hands here. I know some of you are, are already rolling your eyes. You don't like to raise your hands for some reason in church. And so we're going to start with a level playing field. Raise your hand if you have a hand. Ah, you're listening. Very good. A couple of you a little slow, but I think we got most of the hands up. Uh, you can put your hands down. Now, raise your hand if you would say you are more naturally non-confrontational. 
Yeah, some of you don't even want to raise your hands. You're kind of timidly raising your hand a little bit. You don't want to be confrontational by raising your hand. For here, is that saying somehow that, that those who are confrontational are somehow wrong? And so you don't want to initiate that confrontation uh, unnecessarily. How about, uh, go ahead, put your hands down. Um, how about raise your hand if you have no problem whatsoever confronting? Yep. Several hands shot right up. A few people put both hands up, right? You were waiting for that. You were ready and, uh, and you wanted me, uh, you wanted to, to show very clearly that you are not confrontational. In fact, uh, some of you uh, have already started composing uh, that email about the friend with the bad breath. Uh, maybe it's to me, who knows? Uh, but this highlights that there are two confrontational extremes. There are those who are unwilling to confront. They're unwilling to confront just about anything. They never appreciate needing to confront something, and this can make them very conflict avoidant. We we would rationalize this by saying, well, it's really not my business, you know, or who am I to judge? I don't want to come across as harsh or judgmental. I don't want to lose a relationship over this. So maybe it'd be better to just be quiet and just go with the flow and let things continue. So that's on one end, one extreme that we're unwilling to confront what needs to be confronted. On the other end of the extreme, there are those that are too willing to confront. Too willing to confront. They're always almost looking for a confrontation. And as soon as they see it, they are willing to speak out about it. And they often come across and is confronting in a very unloving way. Sometimes that's intentional and sometimes it's accidental. Uh, but the the nature of their comfort with uh, confrontation can make them come across as unloving. And so we either don't take a stand at all or we stand up in the wrong way. And both of those can be sin. Both of those can lead to uh, the wrong outcomes. And so we want to look at the the examples that we see in the, here in the book of Daniel, and we can also correlate these to examples that we see in the ministry of Christ and the teachings of the New Testament, that there are, uh, that there are ways that we can stand out that will be well-received, that we can stand out in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be looking at this entire chapter today, and so I'll read fairly quickly. Um, uh, in most of these parts, we'll slow down in a few areas, but that way you'll get the overarching theme and the overarching um, what's going on here and what's taking place. <coughs> and then we will uh, dive in on a few points as well. So if you have one of our blue hardcover Bibles, this is on page 1376. And uh, let's try to, uh, to move through the first half of this and pause just once or twice um, to, to make sure we're all on the same page. So King Nebuchadnezzar, that's the first thing we should recognize here is that this is not Daniel writing this. Daniel has included this in the book of Daniel, um, but it is more like a testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. So this should be of some interest to us. So he identifies himself as the author and he identifies his audience next to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's an interesting opening to this letter. Last week we talked about how King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most evil and wicked kings. He was set on world domination, and not just that, he, he when he 
took over in Israel and set Israel up as one of his nation states that would pay tribute to him, he sought to single-handedly destroy their past, present, and future. He looted the temple. He took the very best and brightest of, of the next generation into his own royal court. And that's how Daniel came to be there. And uh, was a pretty nasty guy. Um, so it's interesting that he started this letter this way. Something very significant must have happened in his life. So let's read on and see what it was. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came. I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Let's pause there uh, before we move on. This uh, word could can also be translated as would. So you could read that statement that they could not interpret it or they would not interpret it. <coughs> Interestingly enough, when you hear the dream, you'll probably say, you know, I think a second grader could interpret that. So would is probably a better translation for that, and the fact that he was terrified says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar probably knew what this dream was all about. He was just looking for confirmation from that. So they were not going to interpret it for him. Finally, verse 8, finally Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From every creature, from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, to, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. Usually this means years, um, and can be translated that way. The decision is announced by the messengers, the holy ones, declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So there's a couple things going on here. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, Nebuchadnezzar was a, a very evil king, but he saw something uh, of God. He saw just enough of God in the life of Daniel that he was drawn in. And he was drawn into Daniel and knew that Daniel um, would, would be able to answer him, knew that Daniel would do the right thing. And uh, this, we have reason to believe, is about 50 years old for Daniel. So, so about 35 to 40 years has passed since um, chapter 3 when we talked, or chapter 1 that we looked at last week. And uh, Daniel has been serving there for some time. King Nebuchadnezzar is much older now. And... Um, 
And he's seen enough of God that he's drawn in and he's open. And that's not unlike some of you or some of your friends. They've seen enough to know that there's something to it. And you have people in your life, if you are living for Christ, you have people in your life who have seen enough of God in you and through you that they are open and they are seeking. And we should take that very, very seriously as uh, Daniel does. He calls Daniel in because he knows Daniel will do what's right. He knows that Daniel will stand up. Daniel doesn't like what he hears. We're going to see that very clearly in verse 19. And he has a choice to make. And he could have dodged it. He could have declined. He could have said, no, this is the one. This is the one dream, the, the one mystery that I can't solve. Or, you know, say, you know, I'm, I'm actually retired now from dream interpretation. Or, or say, you know, maybe King Nebuchadnezzar, maybe he just, you know, you ate some bad pizza late last night and you had a weird dream. That's, that's understandable. Or he could have made something up and a false interpretation. But he doesn't do any of those things. Let's look and see what Daniel does in verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So it's very clear that Daniel knows exactly what's going on here and does not want to have to share this dream and its interpretation. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. So Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. This is a very wise approach that Daniel is taking here. He's not delighting in the fact that the king is, is going to lose his kingdom, which is, is what's coming. Um, he takes the approach of, of kind of propping the kingdom up, of, of softening his approach a little bit, of, of making the king feel like Daniel is very much on his side. He continues, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting place in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. There's a little bit of flattery in here, and that's okay. It is true that the dream represents, uh, the, tr the tree represents the king. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him be live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched in the dew of heaven, which basically means you'll sleep outside on the ground. That's where dew falls. Um, so unless you have shelter, you get drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So Daniel interprets the dream, sort of the duh moment, and he does so with a, with a wise approach. You know, maybe you've heard of the one-minute manager approach where you come in, there's an issue that needs to be addressed. You start with a compliment. You don't start with the issue that needs to be addressed. You start with a compliment. You compliment something good, something that's going well, something that's being done correctly, and then you address the issue that needs to be addressed, and you finish with a compliment or finish with some gratitude or some appreciation or some acknowledgement uh, of the good work that the person does. That's, that's 
kind of textbook management for the last 20, 30 years at least. But we all know and have probably been on the receiving end of, of confrontational drive-bys where somebody just drives up, rolls the window down, do, 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 you know, gives us all the complaints, everything we're doing wrong, everything that's not going the way that it's supposed to be, and then peels out and, and takes off again. We see this in our children. Uh, if you have more than one child, then you know that you don't take the same approach with every child. That maybe the first child is a little bit more uh, compliant and responds well to structure and uh, expectations. And so you can, you can address things fairly quickly and fairly easy. Maybe uh, younger children need a little bit more time. Hey, let's read a story that maybe illustrates this point. Or let's sit and let's have a moment together. Or maybe you need to play your teenage daughter a Miley Cyrus song and talk about that as a doorway, as an approach to the issue that needs to be address whatever the case may be we see Daniel taking a good approach kind of leaning in and, and easing into this and I think that illustrates the point that confronting with caution results in restoration confronting with caution results in restoration when we go in guns blazing willy-nilly and we're not cautious at all and we don't give it a lot of forethought and we just fire away that seldom brings about the results that we want. We may get compliance for a short time, but we may also have a vacancy to fill. Whether we're talking about an employment situation or a relational situation, uh, that, that when we choose caution, we're much more likely to see restoration. Now, I want to focus a little bit more time on verse 27, which is why I stopped there. Uh, this is where Daniel kind of crosses over the line. He moves from an interpretation to giving advice, and, and it happens to be unsolicited advice. The, the request was for an interpretation. Uh, Daniel takes a step further here, and this is where he really stands up. He says, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice, not just the interpretation and not here's what God's saying, but here's my advice. Daniel, Belteshazzar, is giving you advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. You know, Daniel risks his life in verse 27. He risks his life with the message to repent. He risks his life by pointing out that there is sin in the king's life, that there is wickedness in the king's life. He stands up to the king for two reasons, and I don't want you to miss this. He stands up for two reasons. The first is that it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. When you see somebody that's going in the wrong direction, it is the right thing to do to tell them they're going in the wrong direction. If you are traveling west on I-90 and you're driving across the state and you stop at one of those rest areas that's just for people that are traveling west on I-90 and you talk to somebody and they say, oh yeah, we're on our way to Minnesota. It is the right thing to do to tell them, no, you are going west. You are moving towards Wyoming, not towards Minnesota. You're doing them a favor. Now, we have to do it in a way we don't want to tell them that they're an idiot or, or you know, there's the wrong way to, to, to perform even in that example. But we encounter people who think they're going in one direction and it turns out they're going in another direction. And if we do not tell them the truth, we are not serving them. Daniel tells him the truth because it's the right thing to do. The second reason that Daniel stands up to the king, I believe is the probably the most important thing and it leads in, into our bottom line. Daniel wants the king to know God. Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to know and worship God for the, for the relationship that Nebuchadnezzar could have with God. 
And that's our bottom line today. When we stand up, we stand up not just because we're right. We should make sure that we're right. We shouldn't have the wisdom to know what that God would want us to do and stand up, not just because we're right, though, but also be, so that others can be right with God. That the motivation is not just to show that we are right. The motivation is so that others can be right with God. And we see this so clearly with Daniel here. But unfortunately, the second half of this is so often absent, especially within the church, especially within Christianity. When we take a stand or stand up, we take a stand on the word of God and that we are right and we give all the reasons that we're right, but but we don't do it in a way that communicates that we want people to be right with God. And this was an issue in the New Testament church, I believe, because Paul addressed it very specifically and very clearly in Galatians chapter 6. I want you to turn there for a moment. Uh, Keep a thumb in Daniel. We will finish up this chapter. But here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. If someone's caught in sin, you who are spiritual need to gently restore the one who's caught in sin. He's talking about a time when Christians need to stand up. Now, it's interesting that he says, you who are spiritual, and I don't think he's talking about new wave spirituality at all. He's not talking about some nebulous spirituality of somebody who meditates or does their little alms or anything like that. He is talking about spiritual in a very specific sense. And if you look at the tail end of Daniel, or of Galatians chapter 5, it becomes very evident what that is. He's talking about the contrast between those who are following the flesh and those who are following the Spirit of God. And this is where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When you have those in your life in abundance, when you are following after the Spirit of God, he says, if we are led by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's what he's talking about when he says, you who are spiritual, you who are living to the spirit, not to the flesh. You who are, there's no pride involved. There's only the pursuit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control at work in this. And when we see someone entangled or caught up in sin, there's a time there that we must take a stand. We must stand up. And there's something there that needs to be confronted. And when we do, I believe that this passage points to two prayers that should be on our lips prior to and during such a confrontation. The first prayer is, Lord, help me to confront this issue. Help me to confront with caution and genuine concern. He says, watch yourself. That's the caution part of things. Watch yourself lest you fall to temptation or lest you be tempted as well. He recognizes that we are often most critical of others in the areas that we struggle the most. Jesus said, why do you try to remove the speck from your brother's eye when there is a log in yours? To contrast the differences, sometimes the areas that we struggle the most are where we're most likely to want to confront somebody else. So we want to do this with caution because we're vulnerable to pride. And it's easy to see ourselves as being above others, especially when we've been enlightened and we have the knowledge of the truth. Uh, we can take that and do the wrong things with it. So we want to be cautious. Remember, confronting with caution results in restoration. But the other reason why I said, Lord, help me to confront with caution and genuine concern is that genuine concern is often absent from such confrontations. And you know that it feels totally different when somebody 
confronts an issue in your life with genuine concern for you and your well-being. You know that that feels totally different than when somebody just confronts you because they're right and you're wrong. You see, people will never care how much you know until they know how much you care. And you know that because you feel it. You feel the difference between somebody who genuinely cares for you and somebody who just knows that what you're doing is wrong. So that's the first prayer. Lord, help me to confront with caution and genuine concern. The second prayer is similar, uh, but it takes it a step further. It's, Lord, help me to confront with the goal of restoration. Paul writes, restore them gently, because the approach really does matter. And it's interesting, I, I got a bit of a I earned, I believe, a, a bit of a reputation in high school and college for being sort of an arrogant jerk. And uh, a lot of my peers were like, yeah, he's good to be around, but he's kind of an arrogant jerk sometimes. And and really, I think it had to do with the way that I confronted things and the way that I had some of those conversations. And um, and I didn't, it was a blind spot in my life. I didn't realize <laughs> that I was an arrogant jerk. Um, but a few people would point it out to me, usually in the midst of confrontation, and I would dismiss them because they were wrong and I was right. And and it wasn't until I had gone through a couple of years of counseling that my counselor, like any good counselor, she led me into my own realization. She didn't tell me, hey, guess what, Mark, you're an arrogant jerk. Uh, she led me into my own conclusion that rather than using the phrase arrogant jerk, I, I realized I was a graceless perfectionist. I was somewhat pharisaical um, in my own approach. And what was really revela revelatory for me um, was that I wasn't just a graceless perfectionist to everybody else. Long before I ever confronted you as a graceless perfectionist or an arrogant jerk, I was a graceless perfectionist to myself. I was a graceless perfectionist to myself. I held myself to a higher standard than I held anybody else and seldom uh, gave myself any accolades. It always seemed to fall short. It always um, was not enough in my own mind. I could have done more. I could have done better. Uh, especially when I came into ministry, uh, ironically. Um, and so I share that with you for a couple of reasons. One, approach matters. <laughs> and I often had the wrong approach early in life, and I think I'm moving in the right direction. I'm sure I still get this wrong on a regular basis. But the second reason is that when somebody comes across as an arrogant jerk to you, it's very, very likely that they are a graceless perfectionist to themselves as well. And that might just help you make a breakthrough in your relationship with them. So we pray with these two prayers before we confront. We pray, Lord, help me to confront with caution and genuine concern. And Lord, help me to confront with the goal of restoration. That the goal is not me showing how right I am, but the goal is restoring this person to you, restoring this person to God, restoring this person to community. And that's our bottom line. We stand up not just because we are right, but so that others can be right with God. We stand up and confront in a restorative way with genuine concern and being cautious ourselves, make sure our hearts are in the right place and that we're doing the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. Because we've all been on the receiving end of confrontations that are very much like I'm right and you're wrong. And there are whole groups of people in this world that get confronted often with the we're right and you're wrong. And that's the end of the story. And there is very little caution and there is very little genuine concern. And it doesn't feel like the goal is restoration. But there is a way to confront issues that starts with the reality you are loved. 
for what you're doing is wrong. And you can be restored. And we want to see you restored. And we want to help you be restored. Do you feel the difference? One is biblical. One is not. One follows the examples, the positive examples of wisdom and courage combined to confront an issue that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see in the lives of prophets like Daniel that we also see in the life of Jesus. There is a way to confront that will correct the issue in a restorative way. Because too often we as the church have gotten to be known for what we are against rather than what we are for. And so as we bring this to a close, I want to give you one more point that we see very clearly in the last few verses of chapter 5 here. Of chapter 4, I'm sorry. Picking up verse 28. Read the rest of the story. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Don't miss that. It was 12 months later. Daniel had to be faithful and live with the fact that this hadn't happened yet for 12 months. He had to continue to trust God for 12 months. And as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my piety power and for the glory of my majesty? And the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So don't miss this last little point, that... Daniel took the risk, he stood up, he confronted the king, and the king didn't turn for seven years, just as was prophesied. But it took 12 months for all this to take place. Daniel didn't fail in those 12 months. He, didn't, he, he had no reason to feel like a failure because he had been obedient to what God had called him to do, which was to confront the king and to give the interpretation, and to tell the king what needed to take place in his life. And it's, it's an example of Daniel trusting God with the results. And here is, here is the, the lesson in all of this right here for Daniel in this case, is that God calls us to obedience, not to outcomes. God calls us to obedience, 
not to outcomes. And because Daniel was obedient, even though the outcomes took a year to eight years to, to come about before the king finally turned, Daniel was obedient and trusted the outcomes to God. And I'll close with these opening words from chapter four that we read at the beginning of this, where Nebuchadnezzar says, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel took a stand. He stood up at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. And it resulted in the most powerful man alive at the time, giving glory and honor to God, using his influence to give praise to God. Don't miss that. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for who you say we are. We thank you for your word and the way that it instructs us and the way that it inspires us and the way that it encourages us. And I pray today, God, that we will be a people who find courage in your word to stand up at the right time for the right reasons in the right way and for the right things. And may we do so not only because we are right, Lord, but so that others can be right with you. May we confront lovingly and with restoration as our goal. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.